0: This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock?
1: Tech story is front and centre. What
0: will this wind up doing to the cost curve?
2: Your connection from
0: the London market close to the US market
1: action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It
0: feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in.
1: This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. With Guy Johnson and Alex Steele.
0: Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years.
1: On Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele, I hope, in New York. Um, Friday, the 19th of August. Um, I have some good news for you. It is the weekend. I have a lot of bad news for you. We'll work our way through that uh, as we go through this show. Uh, equity markets, Alex, um, not turning out to be a great session. The Italian market's down by 2%. The FTSE finish just in positive territory. But European equities are... Off on the week. The action's been in the bond market today. Huge sell off in the bond markets. Italian tens are up by 17 basis points. Most European bond markets have sold off pretty hard today. And gas prices. Just as we've come through for the end of the week, just to kind of finish things off and really kind of kick us in the shins, uh, up another huge wallop today. Um, German gas price, sorry, Dutch gas prices up six percent. UK gas prices up another two percent. Yeah, the
0: news definitely not that great Uh, over in your neck of the woods. We'll get to that throughout the next uh, throughout the next hour. Here in the US, the Nasdaq is down by about two percent. It's an ugly day here. Yields are higher, the dollar's higher, but it has a different kind of feel. I feel like it's a little bit of position adjustment into Jackson Hole. Maybe we're listening to the Fed officials, but. Also, we got options expiration, $2 trillion worth of options expiring, and that's going to make all of this a little bit messy.
1: Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see if we, A, bounce off the 200-day moving average and the 4,300 level on the S&P, one to watch out for. So that's what's happening. That sets the stall for the next hour. We have a lot to discuss, as I say most of it not exactly positive from a European perspective. Here to set us up with all the headlines, though, is
3: Charlie. I uh, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Speaking of not exactly positive, a transit horror show, an absolute nightmare in London. A strike by underground workers has brought the capital's transit network to a grinding halt a day after that nationwide walkout by railway staff. Another rail strike scheduled for tomorrow as the UK endures a summer of action by workers demanding pay increases to offset soaring. Food and energy price hikes. Speaking of which, Britain's surging inflation rate is forcing consumers to pay more for the same amount of goods, underscoring a dimming outlook for the economy. The Office for National Statistics said retail sales volumes unexpectedly rose 0.3% last month, but the cost of those sales increased more rapidly by 1.3%. And UK household energy bills are set to rise about 80% in October when the regulator. Next lifts a limit on how much supply, suppliers can charge in the wake of soaring wholesale costs. That's according to the latest estimate from a consultancy as the window closes for Ofgem to generate what the cap will be. Average bills will likely be near 3,600 pounds a year when the new level is announced next week. That is the latest from the news desk, Guy Johnson. Hope you're getting home okay. That is the latest. Back to you now in London.
1: I can walk to the station. It's fine, I'll get home tonight. It may take a little bit longer, but that's okay. it's not raining. Um, Charlie set out some of the uh, the grim news that we get. We've got a strike today, but the data are uniformly bad right now. So Charlie mentioned what's happening with energy bills. They're set to rise 80% here in the UK in October to around 3600. This is according uh, to a consultancy that tracks these things, but they could go in the second quarter of next year. To 5,856. So another big chunk of change on the upside, as a result of which, unsurprisingly, consumer confidence is tanking. We're now at levels we haven't seen for consumer confidence since 1974. Charlie mentioned the retail sales data, Alex, which is a little better. But actually, there's a, there's a kind of there's a bunch of freaky factors in the data here. For instance, Amazon Prime Day was brought forward. That's mm-hmm. kind of messed with the numbers a little bit. It's not good.
0: Well, also, if you back out for rising costs, like sales weren't that great, you're basically spending more to buy less. That yep. that's not a good that's not a good environment.
1: Shrink inflation, I think they they call it, uh, and you're seeing it. I have to be honest, absolutely everywhere. Alex and I caught up with Stacy Widlitz a little bit earlier on. She's a, uh, an expert on what is happening in the retail space. She normally spends most of her time trawling the stores here in the UK. She's in LA right now. Uh, we turned to her to get some sort of analysis of what is happening in the space
0: i think it's very much the same dynamic which is the consumer is getting hit from all angles whether it's food energy it's everything is costing more your basics are costing more we also had lapped the big stimulus and really starting in the june time frame we saw things drop off in a significant way particularly for discretionary and in the uk despite the amazing weather the consumer is obviously feeling terrible with double-digit inflation and things to get worse, as Guy outlined, with energy prices again set to rocket in October.
1: Stacy Widlitz talking to us a little bit earlier. It, it's not good news. Um, let's find out how much grimmer it's going to get, what the outlook is. Marcus Ashworth joins us now on the line to give us a sense of what is happening here from Bloomberg Opinion. Marcus, the data, your thoughts.
4: <laughs> <laughs> i've got no idea and i don't think anyone else does either i mean some of these uh forecasts uh, which you are seeing come out more and more on, on hgc I, I don't hold too much stead by them i'm not saying they're going to be wrong but i don't think they're going to be right in the context that they're it's all guesswork at the moment and i think that's part of the problem um, sorry th- you're talking clearly, about the
1: the off gem how much energy prices are going to go up
4: the, we know we know what they will go up uh, well, we're fairly clear to go up in October. Beyond that, yeah. I, I think it, right. it's it's for the birds. It really is. To, and I think we're all at dangers of talking ourselves sometimes into, into an even bigger hole than we already are in. Clearly, the government's going to have to do something on this. But I mean, you know, you look at the economy as far as retail sales is concerned, as far as the labor data is concerned, PMI's, uh, employment. You know, it's actually pretty strong, the UK economy. In a context, it's flatlining growth terms but it's not as bad as it as it, certainly as the market had, had expected, and well, the Bank of England had expected up till now. The point is, that's great. We're coming going to come off from a higher cliff, but clearly we are going to have some downsides. Well,
0: because you know here in the U.S., like we're talking about peak stuff. Like we've seen the peak in the things, and now it's a question of how fast, say, prices will come down. I feel like in the US, in the UK, we haven't seen the peak at all. So I'm trying to understand: like, are we too pessimistic, or are we pessimistic enough, or do we have to get even more pessimistic?
4: Well, I think we're way too pessimistic. I think that's, really? that's part of the reason why, why the consumer yeah. hit a brick wall in February in in, um, in the UK, and that, that clearly was was I think driven by a, a picture of like impending crisis coming, and it certainly slowed uh, retail spending. That that in some senses has come back, particularly uh, online stuff. We can see from the data at the moment. So I mean, the economy is is doing okay, uh, and in some senses, if you have to have a recession, this is a good place to start from, but. You know, I think we are going to get this classic uh, price shock from obviously particularly led by energy and that, that is is not backing away on, on the gas side. What is noticeable is that petrol prices are falling at long last. Uh, I can think there's been a bit of price gouging going on for the last few months, but certainly, um, you know, petrol prices are down by, a, well, a, a good 25% from the top. So that there is some uh, element of, uh, of good news on that. Why that hasn't, you know, normally petroleum, petrol and gas prices are, are sort of linked in certain ways. But there's a massive disconnect at the moment. Um, but the, the, the semi-good news is at least the uh, storage facilities in, in Germany do seem to be doing better than we might have hoped at this stage. And there's a possibility they get to that crucial sort of 95% by the winter, which means that the whole of Germany doesn't have to shut down. Likewise, the Rhine is also filling back up again, or will be. Um, so that sense we can get some transportation. There, there is a glimmers, glimmers of little good news out there. If you look hard.
1: You, you've got to look hard. Um, it's not hard to see the bad news and ppi at 37 percent.
4: yes well that that's, that's just the, the direct correlation <laughs> it's like, right, of, well, of the gas prices it, it's the gas prices we, oh, sure we, we, sure this but, but that far. usually
1: yeah. is what feeds through that is that is what industry is dealing with those are producer prices isn't that just a lead indicator as to what is going to happen ultimately with the wider economy
4: most, most certainly, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it is. It's a question of whether or not there are other factors that counterbalance it somewhat, but uh, there's no doubt about it. It's going to be a rude, horrid shock. Uh, it's just, as I said, there are some some reasons to believe it won't be quite as bad as it might have been, um, but there's all to play for. And I, I clearly think that, um, you know, some decisions like reopening nuclear power stations, as I said, some of these nuclear reactors in France getting, getting their technical stuff in line. Uh, we're reopening the rough storage facility off the uh, north coast of England, um and that, you know, will will start to things will start to get in some senses there will be there is some light. But the question of whether it's an oncoming train, we haven't worked out yet.
0: So what does this mean then for central banks? Can we go back to the UK for a second? <laughs>
4: um
0: so for the BOE, should they be front loading hikes more? Yeah. Are they gonna be able to yeah. do the things they wanna do?
4: I think um I think they're they've pretty much got, got a uh, 50 basis points is, is now September 10th. It looks like it's pretty much nailed on. Certainly, the markets priced it, that in and more. Um, some of the forward pricing is unbelievably crazy, up by 100 basis points this month alone. Uh, you know, expecting 200 basis points of rate hikes by March. Now, that's not going to happen, but it shows you how unbalanced uh, perhaps position you've got and perhaps too complacent probably because the us cpi you know surprisingly was better than expected and everyone thought well what happens over there must happen over here well not yet anyway uh so certainly i think with double-digit inflation the bank of england has got very little choice but to get their act together get on with it and i expect another 50 basis points rate hike as for europe well that's a much harder question
1: what is liz truss if she becomes the next prime minister going to have to do differently than what she is saying
4: now? What she's saying now, well, I, mean, Mom, I think she's been quite clear what she wants to do is that she, she doesn't want to change the system uh, as it operates you know, midway through a crisis. That that never tends to work very well. Uh, what she wants to do is to try and uh, rather than give handouts uh, for everything in some senses, I yep. affect what would be called a price cap. She wants to try and give income support and, and do some things which are, are perhaps uh, more stimulatory to the economy rather than just a direct helicopter uh, Do you, think she's, helicopter going to be able, do you think
1: she's going to be able to survive a winter by doing that?
4: Yes, and, but the, there's one word, borrowing. A lot of it. Right, and how that's much? What's coming. Um, well, I think she's going to have to spend, she's already said she's going to spend 30 billion straight away. I think we may have to double that. Yeah. Um, and I don't actually have a problem so much with uh, increasing borrowing in this type of situation, because this is a potentially generational style shock to the economy here you do not want small small businesses going bankrupt en masse and that's the one aspect I, that people haven't before, really focused though. on yet
1: i've i i we are coming out of a pandemic when we borrowed amazing amounts of money now we're going to be borrowing amazing amounts of money it's almost compensate for the fact that we borrowed amazing amounts of money last time around as well yeah exactly that <laughs> which is which is slightly head-scratching but but is this something that is that is What is the long term effect of this? We've had basically two crises back to back. The government has attempted to basically borrow through it. The balance sheet is looking a little on the stretch side, if I'm being honest. What is the long? Uh, Well, okay. let's assume that interest rates go higher and stay higher. That's going to have one effect in terms of the government's ability to sustain the higher levels of borrowing. This is going to cost an awful lot of money. At what points? And I appreciate the Bank of England, and we have the ability to print money here, so so it's not a, a same situation as it's on the continent. But nevertheless, what is the long term effect of this extreme borrowing that we are now seeing?
4: Well, okay, I don't think it's extreme. Uh, I, I think also really? there's a big capacity in the in the uh, UK market to to, to want uh, a, a, lots, particularly short and medium term gilts are very short in supply. There's a big uh, demand. Uh, gulf there and, and likewise we know the long end is huge demand for still from pensions so in some senses we're in a lucky situation our debt gdp is below uh 100 and it's going you know it's forecast to go quite a bit lower than that of course that's now not going to happen perhaps but we have the capacity to borrow we have a a liquid and active market and and we have some structural demand there so in that senses i mean Also, the other thing which people certainly never quite get with index link linked gilts is that 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 bill doesn't get paid straight away. It gets paid at the end. So when these things, a lot of them are very long-dated, might mature in 50 years' time, yes, there will be a bigger bill to pay than there otherwise would have been. But in some senses, what happens in 50 years, we don't know. So it's not something which is a a reckoning which is going to hurt immediately. But your point is very correct. I mean, why on earth perhaps the Bank of England didn't get rid of some of its QE a uh, bomb pop before hiking interest rates. Uh, I don't know, but they've got it the wrong way around, in my humble opinion. But um, that it's going to cost more. But at least there is the ability, uh, I, I think, uh, to be able to borrow in the UK, which is not necessarily the situation elsewhere, I'm afraid.
0: So if that's the case, like then, then who buys it? Is the BOE going to have to eventually keep buying this stuff? Or does it just go to regular investors?
4: No, it's going to go regular investors. They're they're trying to sell their own stash. They're, they're, it's going to probably start it next month. But there's uh, enough right demand for the, all of
0: that to sell their own stash plus whatever borrowing has to happen?
4: Uh, he says tentatively yes, with <laughs> the careful, as long as it's 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 gently laid out. And it's it's the, the DMO in this country is, is probably the best, I think, of the debt management offices. We have a superb one here. We're very lucky in that. And it's a very efficient market. Um, so in that context, they know they know what to do as long as they sync with the Bank of England, as they are clearly going to. Then, then they, that's one thing which is works, again, extremely well. well. I don't think there should be a problem. There doesn't need to be a problem. Of course, you know, if it, the scale gets far, far bigger and we do get for some reason a buyer strike, um, then that is a different story. But at the moment, it seems more than more than feasible.
1: Oh, on all that good news, I will head into the weekend feeling very happy. Marcus, thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Sarcasm? You're being sarcastic.
4: I'm here to please.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Bloomberg Opinions, Marcus Ashworth, thank you very much indeed. Plenty more still to come. We obviously need to address what is happening next week as well. Uh, Central banks will continue to be front and centre. Jackson Hole is the upcoming event. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. How hawkish will Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, be? We will find out. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. Listen to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's take a look now at Credit Suisse stock. So over in Switzerland, uh, it was down by about 3.9%. But for the last year, year to date, the stock is down a whopping 45%. Now, one of the biggest shareholders is David Harrow, CIO of Harris Associates. He's a biggest shareholder, and he spoke with Francine Lockwood today on Bloomberg Television um, and talked to you what he thinks about the stock, his position, and what they should do with the investment bank.
5: Well, this, was, this has been a problem, child. We've owned this bank literally since the early 2001. And the first 10 years was a very good holding. <clears throat> I mean, it literally went from 20 to 60 or yep. 70. Now, what we should have done is just sold it, and yep. <laughs> that's it. But of course, during the financial crisis, they actually performed better than most other banks. And we increased our position again and had a very, very poor decade holding Credit Suisse sure. as they've kind of hobbled from one <clears throat> crisis to the next. So what's the situation today? The last 10 years certainly have been bad, very bad for the bank. But you look at the situation today, it trades at less than a third of book value. No. It still has a robust private wealth business Mm -hmm. I mean they have four businesses one of which is absorbing the profits of all the other three and all they have to do really it it sounds simple but all they have to do is prevent the investment bank from losing money and get it back to some sort of growth
6: what would you do with it would you spin it off
5: if they cannot fix it if they cannot if they cannot find a way for the investment bank to earn through cycle returns they have to do something with it whether it's spin it sell it merge it but at this stage the price of Credit Suisse stock assumes roughly a 10 to 15 billion negative on the investment bank and if they could report, repair the investment bank make it such that it can earn through cycle profits Clearly, it's worth more than $15 David,
6: how much time mm-hmm. should, they th- should they try and fix it before they sell it or spin it off or do something with it?
5: Well, certainly in the next year or two, this, this has to be decided, but you can't keep doing the same thing as they've been doing over the last decade and get zero results. They have to put an end to it. At some point, they either have to fix it or to look for other options
6: other options I mean do do we need to think about a a, a big merger I know regulators are are, you know not behind it but is this a a way of putting it out of its misery
5: I mean all the above I think the the most obvious thing for shareholders would be to try to fix it to prevent them from losing money to get that part of the business to earn money again they have some very good franchises in there and there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to ring fence the good franchises exit the places where they cannot make through-cycle returns, and continue. So the best thing for the shareholders would be for them to fix it. But if they cannot fix it, you can't just keep doing the same thing and expect a different result, as the saying goes.
6: Are are there any banks that you've scooped up because of the changing in in European banking landscape?
5: We continue to own what I think are three of the best banks in Europe. Lloyd's here in the United Kingdom in Tessa Sao Paulo, in Italy, and BNP in France. To us, these are the quality of the European banking sector. They represent different parts of Europe. They all sell at extremely attractive valuations. They're growing their earnings. They have excess capital. They're using that capital to grow their businesses as well, to reward shareholders. These banks all yield high single-digit uh, yeah. dividend yields, and they're and they're growing dividends. So to us, this is one of the... Great areas of value around the world today are in high-quality European financials and these banks specifically.
6: Do you think they're immune to a possible recession?
5: No, no bank is immune, but keep in mind when a recession comes, yes, there will be some pressure on credit quality, of course, but in this cycle we're starting at a position of 13 and 14 percent capital and not 5, 6, 7 percent capital, which is where we were in the last cycle. So we're vastly more prepared for the credit cycle and and any adverse credit events today than we were 11 or 12 years ago.
6: Do do you believe that the good days of value trade are over?
5: I don't think they've started. I'm waiting for the good days. (laughs) I'm waiting for the good days. We've certainly seen shock to what I would call growth business price valuations, especially those growth businesses that we we can define them as having high price to sales with very little free cash flow streams these things have finally finally gotten hit quite hard and there's been a little bit of bounce in value but let's look at european industrials for Mm -hmm. instance let's look at a company like mercedes in germany the premier luxury auto brand around the world sitting on over 20 billion of net cash their biggest problem is they cannot satisfy demand they're earning double digit operating margins it trades
6: at four times earnings and yields at 7 or 8% but Dave, but they, the european stocks have been underperforming the us for what the last decade they sure given have. all the concern now with energy prices proximity to russia war in ukraine are they going to continue to outperform
5: these this is one of the, yeah this is one of the reasons why we have this underperformance there is this belief that any company based in europe can't earn money right and what we're seeing six months plus into the russian invasion of ukraine what we're seeing is they've been earning money just fine why because yes they are based in europe but they do business all over the world and this is the disconnect with i think the investment community believe me i have clients and shareholders who say oh you're invested in europe well, these companies are based in Europe, but they do yeah. business all over the world. And as a result, despite some of the right. headwinds, they've been able to earn good profits.
6: So what's been your best return? Is there a company that actually you wouldn't have thought has done as well as it has so well, far? Well,
5: actually, one, one of our best holdings has been Glencore. Oh. But that's for almost countercyclical yeah. reasons. People, you know, there are certain things in which they mine,
6: mm-hmm.
5: whether it be copper, or nickel, cobalt for green energy, or coal to supplement those countries which now need coal because green energy doesn't always work. Um, So they've been doing very, very well. and Plus, their trading operation has been doing very, very well.
1: David Harrow of Harris Associates, a major shareholder of Credit Suisse. I still, and I think a lot of people probably in the same camp, don't really understand why he continues to hold that institution. It's been a tough, tough sell for the last 10 years. Uh, Coming up next, we'll update you on what's happening in these markets. A bumpy end to a bumpy week. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening! Listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London, just past 5.30 where you guys are. Congratulations, you made it to happy hour. Um, Here in the U.S., quick check-in here on the markets, the Nasdaq 100 uh, is lower, Nasdaq overall down by about 2%. Volume is pretty flat. Uh, Yields higher, dollar higher. We have $2 trillion of options expiring. Uh, today. So that's definitely going to affect some whippy action. But we're also setting up uh, into Jackson Hole next week. We also weren't able to break above that 200-day moving average in the S&P. And that is one level that everyone kind of pays attention to uh, to confirm any upside. So we're kind of treading water uh, ahead of Jay Powell. That's a snapshot here in the markets. Let's get your snapshot of the headlines. Here's Charlie Pellet.
3: Hi, thank you very much Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. It was back to work from home today for a lot of Londoners as the underground largely ground to a halt as workers went on strike bringing more disruption to Britain's embattled transport system and forcing people to work from home where feasible. The one-day action falls between national rail walkouts yesterday and tomorrow and coincides with the start of a two-day protest by bus drivers in west and southwest London. TFL Transport for London has asked commuters to avoid travel if possible. Western officials say Russia's invasion of Ukraine is at a near operational standstill with neither side currently able to launch an offensive that would materially affect the course of the conflict. The officials say with both sides more conscious that they face a marathon rather than a sprint in a war already close to six months old, the tempo of the conflict has slowed. They say the question now is whether Ukraine can generate a credible counterattack in the fall. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, the frontrunner to become Britain's next prime minister, has reiterated her pledge to call out Russian leader Vladimir Putin over his invasion of Ukraine in person at a Group of 20 summit in Indonesia in November. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: Thanks so much, Charlie Pellet, and have a good vacay. So, Guy, you're alone next week, man. I'm not here, and Charlie's doing his whole round Alaska in 12 hours thing.
1: I won't take it personally. It'll be fine. Honestly, you guys go. go Have a good time. Just enjoy yourselves. Don't think about me. I'll be okay here.
3: Yeah, the, the idea of I flying 11 hours so day. I can sit six hours in a plane, that works for me. In two days, thousands of miles away from my, where I live, so excited.
0: Yeah, he's doing uh, a thing. He's going to Alaska. He's on the ground for a second, and then he's going to a bunch of airports. He's basically just yep. sitting on a plane for two days, and he's super excited, which I, really which I respect. Am. I, respect. I, I
3: really am. Yep, Exactly
0: uh okay so it's gonna be good
1: it's gonna be good i yeah. look forward to hearing all about it charlie will definitely be regaling us with stories on
0: but you'll your, miss it because all, then you'll be on turn. vacation that's
1: so the bit that i was hoping you wouldn't get to i'll be gone the- yeah. yeah we just got to figure out where we're gonna go that's right the challenge
0: good luck with that uh i heard it's it's cheaper for you to come here than it is to go to europe now because all of us are going to europe
1: there is that, so it's quite busy here in Europe. And there's see, normally, if you want to book a last-minute holiday, they are available. Turns out that may be a little bit not the case this time around.
0: Interesting. Well, I look forward. I look forward to hearing about the the process. Um, okay.
1: Alex is Alex is lying at this point. No the teeth.
0: I care. I I'm intrigued as to where the Johnson no, family winds up. The
1: the other day we talked about going to Florida, and the other day she was just like, oh, so it's, all we're going to hear about now for the next week is. You planning your trip to Florida?
0: <laughs> I was kidding. No,
1: no, there, I no. I think there was a certain amount of sincerity. To, I understand. I understand, but I think there was a certain amount of sincerity to that.
0: I don't think so. I can be sincere and make fun of you all at the same time. These are not mutually exclusive things. Maybe. To be clear. Maybe. Um, here to save us from this conversation is Katie Greifeld. I finally made it here. Who's not on studio. vacation? Um. I wish I were. She wish she was. Well, uh, okay. Markets. They're not on vacation. Okay. First of all, are, are you believing the price action today? What are you making of it?
7: I mean, it is just so difficult to have conviction, it feels like, in any single day. There's so much intraday volatility. Somehow it's not reflected in traditional measures like the VIX at all, but it feels like any day we're sitting there on the close and it's just hard to find any sort of Cohesive narrative that ties yeah. each and every day together. It just feels like it shifts every single day. So today, I see it. I see the S and P 500 down what, a percent or so. It's it's hard to yeah. say that this is going to be the setup on Monday.
1: But nevertheless, we have had a big run, and people are ascribing a certain amount of value to a couple of things. One of which is what has happened in the options market, which has forced uh, market makers to chase the markets. Mm. The other one is the kind of the technicals, and we're now getting to a point where the technicals could work against us.
7: If you look at the technicals, so I mean, if I look at the S and P 500 right now, um, and in terms of today's specific today's intraday volatility, I think a lot of it has to do with that two trillion option expiration that you talked about. But you look at the technicals on the S and P 500. I mean, we're really just caught in the middle between the 50-day moving average, the 200-day moving average. Which maybe I look at that chart uh, on the terminal, and I feel a little bit comforted because maybe it explains why things have been so violently range bound uh just because there it doesn't violently range bound violently <laughs> violently
1: <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything but violently range we're bound I it feels like a contradiction sure, in we're terms. trading
7: sideways but it doesn't feel like a flat line at all but you look at that uh you sort of understand from a technical standpoint okay there's no uh real catalyst there and you think about the macro environment some of the actual fundamentals and uh there's a lot we're waiting for. And until we get there, until we get to Jackson Hole, until we get really just put to bed this earnings season, Hmm. uh, there's still a lot of questions out there. And there's no clear catalyst on the fundamental side,
0: on the technical side. Um, Technicals, uh, we didn't break above the 200-day moving average. And I'm wondering, like the fact that we didn't, Mm -hmm. are we having a different conversation about whether this is a true rally or a bear market rally?
7: I think it's important, um, and I love that you had Steve Sosnick on from Interactive Brokers, and I caught the tail end of his hit, uh, <laughs> Waiting Offset. He was but, pretty awesome. Uh, I liked what he said that, OK, this is a pretty broad, robust bear market rally, but it still is one. And I think it is telling that uh, we've really stalled out at that 200-day moving average. Uh, it's clearly, if I feel like if there was a really robust Catalyst behind this leg up that we've taken beyond just the Fed pivot. I feel like we've exhausted that narrative. That probably we wouldn't be focusing on that specific line so much.
1: Jackson Hole next week. Are people worried? I, th- there's this whole kind of narrative now that the market's kind of like, yeah, don't worry about the Fed. We don't fear the <laughs> Fed. Why should we worry about the Fed? We're not gonna. We, we, we are gonna fight the Fed because, to be honest, they have no credibility.
7: My heart is pounding thinking about next Friday. I know you're on vacation, Alex, but when we finally hear from Pal, I, I, I literally
0: can't tell if she's being serious or not, and I'm <laughs> looking right at her. <laughs> Don't look at me too hard. I think I have salad in my teeth. But
7: I i actually am being a bit serious here, because if you think about uh, what we've seen in financial conditions, just easing like crazy, this huge rebound that we've seen, the narrative that's come about is that Powell has to say something, right? He can't not talk about what's happening in the financial markets. It's like the elephant in the room. And you think about what they're trying to do, tighten the screws on the economy, you know, bring the reins in a little bit. Uh, we have seen inflation perhaps peak. I'm not going to say that. The labor market, though, continues to be red hot. Powell himself has said that that's unsustainable. And then you think about what's happening in risk assets. And of course, the Fed isn't targeting the markets, of course, but it is a symptom of the overall feeling mm-hmm. uh, out there. So, they're trying to tighten financial conditions. It hasn't happened. He has to address it, theoretically.
0: Yeah. Theoretically. What else is he going to th- th- talk th- yeah. about? I don't know. I'm on vacation. will be in Massachusetts, yeah. yeah. Good luck, guys. Have fun. <laughs> Katie, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank <laughs> thanks you. for the hustle in the studio. Katie Greifeld uh, joining us on Markets. No, I'm kidding. I'll be paying attention.
1: No, you won't.
0: I will. Mike McKee wears a cowboy hat. I mean, I'm gonna want to tune in for that. Maybe not at 4 a.m., but I'm gonna tune in at some point.
1: Okay, Mike wearing a cowboy hat is, a hat is certainly something that I want to see, and and maybe boots as well. Totes. You never know. Like they are, they're out in the middle of Wyoming. It's horse country. It's Anything cold can in happen. the mornings. And it, yeah, it's chilly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely. a good talk.
0: It's a good talk. More coming up. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. <laughs>
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. Listening to The Cable,
1: 40 minutes past the hour. So John Deere, manufacturer of all things agricultural, continues to see strong enthusiasm for tractors. Who wouldn't Going into 2023, it looks like demand is going to hold up. But Deere is facing some internal issues. It had a strike it's continuing to have to chase the backlog that has been left from that. And margins are being squeezed. We are seeing this on a number of fronts. Input costs are a factor, but transport has been a huge one as well. Transport costs have absolutely rocketed, but are they now starting to fade? And is that potentially a chink of good news here? Um, We caught up with Craig Fuller. He is the CEO and founder of a company called Freightwaves, which analyzes this kind of data. Yeah, Alex,
8: what we see is really a lot of what's playing out in the freight market in terms of cost is a lot of hangover from the last two years. So uh, really, companies have been reluctant to renegotiate their freight rates. The spot markets have collapsed largely across all uh, markets, container markets, trucking markets. Uh, Spot is reflecting a much slower and sluggish set of conditions. But those contract rates are still historically high. And they are coming down and we have seen them peak, but it's a very slow process for them to churn out. And the reason is that shippers are reluctant to go renegotiate those contracts out of fear that there will be another major capacity crunch. But we believe that that is largely behind us.
1: You listen to the call that we had this week from Walmart. You listen to the call that we had this week from Target and on and on. They're talking about canceling inventory. Presumably at some point that has to feed through into the freight market. Craig, when does that happen and what did you make of those comments?
8: Yeah, I think from bookings out of China, at least in container, because most of what you see in Target and Walmart and the retail side of the uh, ledger is largely containerized freight. And we're already seeing sluggish conditions. You see it in the freight rates coming out of China to the United States. It's, it's really softening and I think as we look forward, we're projecting that freight rates will drop another 40% on that uh, Trans-Pacific Lane by the end of the year okay. simply because there is way too much capacity relative to the amount of demand that's in the market as we look forward. So we think it's going to be a sluggish uh, market heading into the end of the year and we'll continue to say sluggish uh, early next year. So. Craig, I
0: want to go back to that spot versus contract rate. I just don't get if the contract rate is so much higher than spot, uh, why isn't everyone just moving to spot rates? Like, it seems like that would help everything come down a lot faster. What gives with that?
8: Yeah, it's you would think that would happen, but these contract rates are typically negotiated on annual cycles, and they have commitments that they have to live up to. And so what they typically do is they agree to a certain amount of volume Uh, And in return for that volume commitment, they get a committed price. Um, Typically what we see is if the spot, the spread between spot and contract is uh, pretty wide and it's usually double digits. If you see it double digits for more than 90 days, we typically see contract follow uh, the spot rate uh, in terms of just uh, falling that has not happened as fast in this market and has not happened as aggressively. Right now, spot to contract is, at least in trucking, is down by a third. And because of that, you have to really ask yourself, why have contract rates uh, stayed persistently high while spot rates have gone down? And we believe largely it has to do with the reluctance of folks that run supply chains to really aggressively renegotiate the rates Hmm. out of fear of running out of capacity. Because what happens is if they start pushing back on their carriers and if there is a capacity crunch, then those carriers will punish them with not giving them capacity, which is far more dangerous and destructive to a company than simply paying a higher rate.
0: That was Craig Fuller, the founder and CEO of FreightWaves. He also went on um, to talk about the demand story, how the demand story is weakening a bit in China. Um, talked about inventory and how uh, retailers, for example, are looking at their inventory and how that shifted. So, really interesting commentary um, as we kind of try to understand what the key economic signals are telling us about the health of the economy and the consumer. Two things the Fed's going to be looking at next week in Jackson Hole. We'll get the preview for you next. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. Listen to The Cable on Bloomberg D.A.B. Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. If you didn't know already, the big event next week is Jay Powell speaking at Jackson Hole on Friday. So Guy and I caught up with Dominique Dwarf-Fricot. She's senior strategist for MacroHive, and she sees 8% on the Fed funds rate as it has to get above inflation. And we talked to her and asked her what she expects Powell to say.
2: So I think he's going to do uh, uh, three, three things. Uh, first, uh, he's going to stick to the Fed Fund trajectory that we had in the June SCP, so rate hikes uh, next year. Uh, second he's going to tell us that he is absolutely committed to reducing inflation that you know he has the greatest admiration for Paul volcker uh, and third is going he is going to tread ever so gingerly on the issue of the hard landing uh, I mean, again, if you look at the experience of the Fed, uh, the only instances of hard lending, of soft lending following an acceleration of inflation, was when the Fed was very proactive. That window of opportunity is gone. So this makes a tricky, uh, this puts the Fed in a yep. very tricky position. Are they going like the Bank of England tells the world the bad news, a recession is coming? Or are they just going to, you know, dodge, equivocate and until they can no longer? And I think they will do the latter.
1: Uh, the view from Macro Hive. Let's get the view now from Bloomberg's Ira Jersey, uh, chief rate strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, how is the market set up going into Jackson Hole, going into that speech this time next week?
9: Yeah, so so the market seems to be thinking that the Fed's going to go too slow, right? That's one of the reasons why we've seen this little bit of steepening of the yield curve, I think, and certainly why we've seen some of the inflation expectation um, uh, measures, like break evens on the the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities market, start to climb a little bit here. You know, it's not a lot; they're not massive moves. They're all within the ranges that we've seen over the past couple of weeks, but um, but but it's still you know pretty noticeable the fact that we're not continuing to flatten the yield curve at least at this point.
0: Um, so do you think that his job next Friday is going to be to talk the market up in order to convince the market that they aren't going to pivot anytime soon? Do you think it's his goal is going to be not to do say anything that raises headlines? Like, wh- wh- What do you think?
9: Well, so, so the market does seem to be taking the some of the statements that he made at the last uh, press conference, that Powell made at the last press conference, as a pivot because it go, they're going to data dependency. But the Fed is always data dependent. That's not new and you know that that's number one number two I, I think that that the idea that they're going to maybe slow uh interest rate hikes doesn't mean that necessarily the terminal rates going to be any lower in fact the terminal rate could be higher because they can just actually continue to hike at at a slower pace for longer and, and i think that the market has completely missed that fact well not the rates market though completely because we have now priced back in another to another 25 to 50 basis points of, of interest rate hikes and I, I think that that's that's important and i think that that can keep going. Now, Now you know, I don't think that the Fed's going to hike to 8% because uh, it's not going to need to. But, um, but but you know, I do think that, that the idea that the Fed can continue hiking well into 2023, which just about every single Fed speaker since the July meeting has said they're going to do, um, right. it, it, you know, means that, that if inflation doesn't come down as quickly as the Fed wants, which we don't think it will, um, th- then the Fed is going to have to keep hiking, you know, to be at least above 4%. So you still have a pretty significant repricing that needs to take place in in the shorter term treasury securities as well as things like the fed funds futures market.
5: there,
1: there seems to have this be this be, have been this belief that we're now focusing back on the growth narrative rather than the inflation narrative. what you're saying is that we should actually continue to focus on inflation because that's ultimately going to take rates higher and this whole idea that everybody's waiting to pounce particularly in the due, sort of in the longer end to get some real value there is well that trades too early basically.
9: Yeah, I do think that that's too early. Like, You know, if, if you were underweight, maybe you get less underweight. And I think that is something that's happening right now where people had been thinking, hey, interest rates are going to keep going up. We might have a 10 year that's going to go to three and a half percent. Well, maybe it's only going to go to three and a quarter. So instead of being full bore short, I can this, I can, um, uh, you know, cover some of those shorts and just be a little bit more flat to my benchmark. And, and that's important, too, because one of the things guy, that, that's happened now compared to, say, beginning of the year is is it's hard to harder to be short because remember if you're short uh rates and you're you're short the treasury market for example you're paying that coupon so so you have to pay if if you sell uh a treasury security you have to pay that three percent um and uh and then uh and then finance that position so so there's a cost to being short that's non-trivial um and uh so so it's hard to be short for a very long period of time um that 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 being said um i mean i do think interest rates are going to be somewhat higher and that that your your point about the inflation narrative being, uh, you know, being the first and foremost on on investors' minds will probably come back at some point, and and not because headline inflation doesn't fall because it will because of what's gone on with oil, but it's that that you a lot of the data that we've gotten since the uh, since the July meeting suggests that core inflation is going to keep rising, mm-hmm. and if that's the case, then you know the, the Fed is going to be worried about how sticky overall headline inflation can be over the medium term.
0: Also, I just want to put out here that like. It's possible that oil falling is also transitory. Like, if $130 oil is transitory, you can make an argument that $70, $80 oil could also be transitory. I'm, I'm just saying, it doesn't necessarily. Well, mean
1: well I, it could well, go back y- up again.
0: I was like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you could go to 100. Like, and we're all expect. Oh, it went down. Now it's going to be down forever. Um, Ira, before we let you go, I'm off next week, so you need to help Guy. What are the two questions <laughs> we, he needs to be thinking about next week?
9: Yeah, yeah. So I think next week it's, um, you know, is is the growth rate, uh, things like retail sales and stuff, is that still on the forefront of um, of the Fed's mind? And then, you know, you know, will will Powell be hawkish, right? How hawkish is his speech next Friday? Because if it continues to be uh, hawkish like the June meeting, then you know that the market can reprice very quickly.
1: Ira, great stuff. Thanks for that. Really appreciate I need all the help I can get, to be honest, um, particularly, particularly with Alex not here. So, Ira, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Bluebird, great strategist. Ira Jersey, uh, chief rate strategist for the U.S. Um, so, so you're li- quite literally heading for the hills.
0: Uh, literally heading for the hills. Yep, the Berkshires. Literally their hills, its altitude. Hopefully, good weather. Altitude. Hopefully, no one will talk to me for a long time. We'll see. I'm a seven-year-old, okay. so that may not be that, that That's possible. That's unlikely,
1: unlikely <laughs> to happen. Okay, that wraps things up for Alex and me. I'll be back next week. I just have to wrap the show up with this. Bye. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. <laughs>